Hey everyone! Hey, 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 hey. Cock, 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 It's time for Kings of King. Kings of King. I love that theme. The guy already did it. You don't need to do I can't do it. I can't carry a melody. I can't replicate a melody. Me neither, man. I can sometimes do the relative notes. That's bullshit. You can sing well. You know it. I don't have the ear. I sing around the house and Jen goes, Jen will chuckle to herself. Yeah, quietly. I know that was going to happen because I. Uh, Did she do that when you guys cohabitated? No, no, we never cohabitated, though. I Didn't mean, you? I thought your roommates. No, we were very no, okay. close. Uh, I think she lived at the czar. So like. But a different time. Yeah, okay. exactly. So it was just a different time. But uh, she she went to. I mean, UCSD music, man, like UCSD music right. for real. And uh, right. So she chuckles and I'm like, what's wrong? And she's like, well, there's nothing. on. <laughs> that was just really pit. It just wasn't really pitchy. The notes of that song or whatever. It's fine, though. I love you. And I'm like, it sounds good to me. I literally can't hear. She's like, it's not. Ah, uh, it's. Ah, uh. <laughs> you know yeah, what I mean? Yeah, exactly. But and she's just, like, well, you got to practice with a piano and your ear would develop. That's yeah. It's and, just a yeah. discerning eye that she has developed over time. I here's the thing. Just like she said, you, if you're having fun, who the fuck cares? You're just singing in a she can chuckle. Mm -hmm. You can enjoy yourself. Everything's great. And we do have fun and we do so for you professionally. <laughs> That's right. It's Kings of King where we have fun in and on and around and under, six feet under, the works of Stephen King as they have been adapted to film and screen. Mm. I didn't mean for that to rhyme. Mm. Uh, but, yeah, that's what we do, and we do it in a number of segments. Is it time to get into the first segment, or do we have more business to get out of the Did way? Did we even say oh, our names? Wait. We got distracted. But yeah, you're Abe Epperson. I'm Abe Epperson. He's Michael Swam. All right, let's go. <laughs> no, there's one more. What? It's the Dead Zone. Oh, it's the Dead Zone. The Dead, the Zone, Dead Zone, 1983. And that reminds me of even more business. But uh, so go ahead, 1983. David Cronenberg. 1983, David Cronenberg, The Dead Zone. That's kind of the, the important part. Uh, Jason Bohm well, wrote the screenplay. But before you like Adaptation. pull us into yeah. the segment, because I would have to honor it, because mm, that's the rule of Kings of King. That's true. Um, I, we're not ready to start the segment, because I want to address that at the end of last episode, which I would oh, like right. to keep doing. Oh, right. We, I want to tell the whole saga real quick. Okay, okay, okay. Um, we, and I also want to check in on another thing. So this is going to be a beefy intro. Forgive me. Mm. But you know, they call me Michael <laughs> Beefy Intro Swain. <laughs> they so. do. Um, it's... We wanted to watch No Smoking, which is loosely based on Quitter's Inc., a great Stephen King short story. And it's an Indian film, and we couldn't find it anywhere. Actually, we did find it one place, which is a Bollywood VOD channel you can subscribe to and watch it there. But other than that, we couldn't find it anywhere easily accessible, including YouTube. And we just felt like people who listen to the podcast probably want to watch along or at least have the opportunity, if it, their interest is peaked, to check out the flick. So we decided to go with the dead zone. We scrambled. Actually, that's not true. No, that's, that's the other true. part of the yeah. site. Abe, take it away. <laughs> what happened next? Well, uh, we wanted to watch uh, Lawnmower Man. Because he thought that would be a fun setup to it. And some of you Kingheads will probably know that that is actually not, uh, it's actually famously not one of his things. Uh, it's not really an adaptation. It said Stephen King's Lawnmower Man. 
But in the initial marketing, it, yeah. but once he saw it, he saw it was so different. The adaptation was so different. And I think he felt that the film was so bad that he just he wanted to take his name off of it. And by doing so, the lawsuit ensued that became very famous because uh, no writer had kind of won in that kind of instance uh, for a very long time, for like decades, uh, in terms of like beating a production, uh, for saying like, this is not, you, you're, you're breaking the law by running this and stuff like that. And, um, they famously sided with him, took his name off of it. But by that point, promotional stuff had already come out that they were, uh, the production was delinquent on it. So he got additional money on top of trying like officially taking his name off of it. So it was like a whole story. It went on for like multiple years and it I, I, created, we just, uh, what you call confusion in the marketplace mm -hmm. and it's, all the way up, all the way to us. Yeah. We, we were confused. Cause yeah, <laughs> I, I always remembered, I was like, it's like Stephen King and I know that he has that, uh, short, uh, uh, story about it. He has a short story called the Lawnmower, lawnmower Man. Man. Apparently, the only things they have in common is that someone kills someone with a lawnmower. Other than that, yeah. completely different subject matter. And I knew about the like lawsuit slightly, but I always thought it was like kind of like an Alan Smithy. Like it was just like agree to disagree, walk away, give me some money, we're going to be fine. But uh, after reading about how much Stephen King really hates it, I think what we ultimately decided is that if Stephen King would ever to listen to this and see that Lawnmower man was on the list of uh films that we're covering on him he would be kind of peeved about that since he personally feels it's not you know up to snuff in terms of you know the kings of king yeah we didn't make the coen brothers brothers to cover suburbicon you know yeah same situation here i think so uh and but although i think they had kind of the last laugh because on his Wikipedia page in the list of adaptations by Stephen it's, King, the lawnmower yeah. man is featured. Yeah. Um, I will say in case it piques anyone interest, anyone's interest to watch lawnmower man. First of all, the director's cut is far superior to the theatrical release. Although I would say both movies are pretty bad. They're pretty um, bad. Yeah. Here's a note that will make you decide to either watch it or not. If you don't know lawnmower man, my, as I was right before we decided to bail, uh, I wrote like a scattering of notes to keep track of what was happening in the plot. One early on before we pulled the plug was cybernetic chimp is injured, takes refuge with slow witted man. <laughs> right. Who immediately calls him Cybo Man. Like does not, does not skip a beat. It's like, absolutely. That's who you are. I love that. You are Cybo, man. Yeah, it's uh, Pierce and Brosnan yeah. is actually trying to bring it in that film, to be honest with you. A lot of shirtless Pierce Brosnan that, and he's really like, he's scrawnier than he is, than like latter era Pierce Brosnan. Jen, mm -hmm. again, if you don't know my lovely girlfriend and live in person, um, was walking by the couch and is like, he's not cute in that movie. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. And she normally likes, she normally goes for a Pierce. Yeah. <laughs> She's fierce. You have no she's, opinion? No, she's just fierce for Pierce, but not in this one. Yeah, it was too much torso body hair, I think. I, she likes I a mean, smooth man. That's uh it's no more or less than Goldeneye, I'll tell you that much. He's just a little bit more beefier. But he has the same yeah, he's tough. beefier. If you it's like a good swaim intro. When he fights uh, Xena on a top, he's got a full we could talk about Pierce Brosnan's relative <laughs> Uh, chest hair for weeks but I'll just we say could. it's about it's pretty similar and that's surprising but to me such practices are banned where we are now yeah unfortunately because we're 
Under the dome. Our best guess puts the dome at 20,000 feet, sir. Did he just call it a dome? You think we might be stuck in here a while? Under the dome, our first segment. This is the elevator synopsis of the movie. And so a we're lawnmower s- man. Yeah, no, not no. Not, wait, the dead zone. No smoking. That's right. No smoking. The dead zone. So um, I don't know. This one's pretty easy, right? I mean, we can kind of like join. Do you want to do like a? Uh, I feel. Do like- you want to rock paper scissors for it verbally? No, <laughs> but our, if that's what you want, then do, do you want to take it or do you want me to take I'll it? I'll take parts. Your of Highness, it. I'll take parts of it. You can take parts of it. It'll be fine. Okay. So, uh, interestingly enough, this is one of the first uh, Castle Rock pictures that we get. Um, By that, do you mean the production company no. or that it is set in Castle Rock? It's set Rock, in Castle right? Rock and it's yep. one of the earlier uh, books by, um, it's 450 pages. I didn't know that. One earlier books. Um, King. Stephen King. King is his name. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. But uh, <laughs> this takes place in Castle Rock, which, you know, will come up later in later episodes and obviously later, you know, works by King. Uh, this guy named John Smith or Johnny Smith, which is kind of, I mean, come on. <laughs> Right. That's not a, that's a pretty, uh, let's just run with whatever. Isn't that also the Pocahontas colonizer guy? Yeah. He's the, uh, he's also the, isn't he the capitalism guy? I don't remember. God. There's probably, we're probably lousy with John Smith at this point. At this Smith. Yeah. Yeah. (laughs) Uh, So he's a school teacher and he's in a relationship with Sarah Bracknell. Uh, and Sarah, Sarah comes up later. They, after he takes her out on a date, um, they go to like a fair, his head starts hurting while they're on a, uh, roller coaster ride. And then, Hey, yeah. What did that have to do with anything? I don't know. I just have to point out that doesn't do anything or impact anything. That's weird. Okay, keep going. <laughs> well, I mean, we'll have to unpack that, but that's a Feels different Feels like segment. a cut scene yeah. or something, sure. Yeah, well, yeah, it's a strange beat. It's definitely a loud beat. It's something that says, hey, here's a headache, and you're like already probably know what the movie's kind of about. Mm-hmm. Uh, having watched the trailer, you know, like Christopher Walken is like, who plays John Smith or Johnny Smith, uh, he becomes psychic by the end of this movie. That's probably all you mm-hmm. know. Uh, unless you read the book at this point. So audiences were probably going like, hmm, what's that headache thing? Is that going to be a part of the psychic thing? Does not come up. That's fine. They go back uh, to her place after the date. And she asks if uh, he wants to like spend the night. And he says, "Nah, I'm going to like wait it out. I think that like some things are worth waiting for. Uh, as he drives home he has a horrible car accident with like a milk uh like a what do you call it a milk truck like a milk semi truck semi yeah, truck that has a big thing of milk i thought that was funny that it was milk as he says in a line i enjoy uh that i made a note of god god threw an 18 wheeler at me knocked me into oblivion for five years it's <laughs> <laughs> spot on uh yeah, and so he uh, that happens, and he's uh, now in a coma. And then uh, we awake, and we don't really know he's in a coma yet. We find out from uh, his doctor, uh, Dr. Sam Wyzak, I believe. Wyzak. Wyzak. That five years have passed. His parents are there, and they're like, yeah, it's been five years. Sarah's now married, has a kid. 
Um, so Johnny has to deal with the fact that his like limbs are atrophied. He's been f- his whole life for five years has been on hold because he's been in a coma. And uh, he discovers that he has new psychic powers. Um, and by con- by basically touching their hand, uh, it has to specifically be that it can't be like it has to be like he grabs their hand and like holds it for like. It doesn't happen like when he just brushes against you. No. It's interesting. It's, yeah, the rules yeah. are interesting. And um, he finds out when he touches a nurse's hand, her daughter is at home right now in a fire or soon to be. Uh, and he realizes that he's basically he can tell the future by touching someone. And it usually is traumatic events or the death of someone close or their own death. Uh, at this point, we don't really know. This is just the first instance of it. Um, <clears throat> he also sees uh, that later in a later scene, the second beat of like what the psychic, what his psychic abilities are, is that his own doctor, after he touches his doctor, that his mother is alive. His mother that he's thought for a long time to have died since like World War II, I think. And... Um, he also finds out that uh, he also finds out there's another the third beat, I believe, is that a reporter who's asking him about his uh, abilities after all this stuff or after the um, saving the uh, the daughter from the fire that her sis, uh, his sister uh, killed herself and that he was like kind of to blame for it. Uh, and he kind of just spouts that out at the reporter. And so there's a whole scene where the reporter like runs out. So it's I think what we're doing here is we're showing like there's one case of he saves someone. There's one case of he's he can look into the deep past of someone and almost display it, like tell them there's been a lie that has happened to you. And the third one is you have done a transgression and I know your secret. So we know that the like width and breadth at this point of his psychic abilities seem to be not centered on one particular thing. Like I have to save one person. He gets kind of the juiciest information out of your mind. Um, you always touch the hand. No telling what you'll understand mm, are the rules. Okay. Yeah. <laughs> so, uh, then Johnny's mom dies. F- uh, uh, from a heart attack and uh important note he touches her hand right he holds her hand in the hospital and nothing happens right is that because she's dead at that moment i don't know if that was because they wanted us i wonder what the book says because i wondered if it was like he was yeah she's dead and he's not getting anything or she's he's also like sort refusing of, she's to senile at that point yeah I feel like we get like the because there's a very specific it's actually off very off putting for me. I hated the sounds and everything when he actually gets like the epile- epileptic editing of the, you know, it says like like it'll have a scream sound effect and then a cut to Christopher Watkins face as he goes like, oh, and then it cuts to mm-hmm. footage like the way in which he sees and has the psychic ability and it tells us uh, through montage uh, is mm-hmm. very off-putting to me. I was very bothered by how they did it. It was, I don't know what it was. I, I think that's a testament to Cronenberg. But um, yeah, because we didn't get that from that, I thought I that means that he must not be getting a read from anybody, right? I assume he's not getting a read from her. I just think it's odd because his psychic abilities are clearly not tied to like neuropathy, if you know what I mean. Or I don't even know if that's the right that. word. No. Neurology. Because like, 
if he's not reading, dead, I guess he's not reading from Dr. Wyzak's brain. It's not psychic like no. ESP person to person because he looks into the past. It's like magical scrying. Yeah. So I just don't understand why he would why you'd have a scene where he gets the chance with psychic powers to touch his senile mother's hand. She's unable to communicate what she'd like to, right? If she mm -hmm, could. Mm -hmm. uh, and she's about to die. And you have the ability to bypass that path of communication and, ha and see something that's symbolic. What a wasted opportunity. You don't have any vision when you touch your dying mom's hand. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Come on. Even if it, I don't understand the rules of it, but I also feel like it's just like a big swing and a miss or it's a, it's not swinging. It's such an easy win. I That's, guess. That's yeah. I think there's more to impact there. I have other thoughts. Yeah. Um, in, so the next thing that happens, it's kind of the the end of act one as the, uh, as people find out that his, um, that his get, he has a gift, uh, the sheriff, uh, arrives at his place and is asking Tom about Scarrett, baby. Yeah, Tom Scarrett. Uh, there's a serial killer around, and he wants uh, he wants Johnny to help. See if he can help. But the Castle um, Rock killer. But Johnny is like kind of recluse and doesn't like the idea that it's like it's a gift. He's very angry with God and with uh, just his lot in the whole like I was in a coma, my life ended. I just want to be left alone. Uh, Sarah, who is married and has a kid now, uh, she visits and they have like kind of a like a, I guess, just a date in, in his house. It starts off seemingly like they're just like reconnecting and just like, hey, what are you doing? What are you doing? But it's very clear very quickly that Sarah has like this agenda to like, well, we're just going to fuck. And then once we fuck, that will be the end of it. Right. And it's like this final goodbye. Yeah. It's yeah. like, I know you got really screwed over. So what I'm going to do is I'm going to, I, I recognize that you are like in pain because of that. And so I'm going to do this for you, which I guess is nice, but also obviously John is Johnny's very, I think this whole thing is like, no, no one should be. Doing I think this. it's predictable from it's her vantage that that won't work out. Yeah, yeah, yeah exactly. <laughs> she should know better. And Johnny should be not like a whiny little like it's yes, yeah, it sucks. But, uh, you know, but that's yeah, you don't get. To I think they have that. Well, they have the added edge that he's religious and comes from a religious family right. and background. Very right. religious. That's why he saved himself. So like the idea that he drove home in the rain so as to not be tempted to fuck her. So mm -hmm. and now he does get to and he's like, it's too late, though. Everything's fucked. I should have. I think he's mad, like you said, at God more than anything yeah. and his loyalty to God, because he's like this in the midst of it. That is an interesting aspect is the religious person Lot who suffers a horrendous turn of fate. And it's like, why me? Yeah. Me and why God Joe? on Hunky Dory. <laughs> why are you, why send these country bears to ruin my life? Um, when you're just walking, yeah, minding yeah. your own walking. Minding your own yeah. walking or driving. As I'm like, just walking here. Uh, the, forgive me. Do you remember why he changes his mind about joining uh, the sheriff? Do you know why? 
I feel um, like there's a beat, but I, from what I recall, or in just in my notes, it's just like he changes his heart about the murders. Uh, his dad sort of gently convinces him. That's right. That's right. His dad talks him down. His elderly father talks him down just by having a nice conversation oh, about yeah, like, right. yeah. it's nice to do good things and it's good to help people if you can. And, and blah, like he blah, sees blah. that he's lonely and, and he's such. Like, yeah. All right. And uh, a point you skipped. Well, I guess I can bring it up in a later segment, but it it, it no, happens, just, so it's kind of out of yeah. the dome. Uh, he also looks out the window during this period and sees a guy mercilessly beating his son. Uh, it oh, never yeah. comes up again, and nothing happens. That it just might happens. be the beat. I'm just saying that might be the beat, honestly, because that's like causes a change of heart, right? Yeah, I just don't understand why in real world terms something doesn't happen following that. Like well, why yeah. he never interacts with that guy yeah, he's or like, does anything. He's looking on, he's like, man, <laughs> and that he's like, That guy victims. beating his kid is a good symbol for me I should to catalyze that. a change. Yeah, I, should help, <laughs> I should help these people. And just the child goes like, please help, somebody help. <laughs> yeah. He's like, that reminds me. <laughs> that reminds me to help some other unrelated people. Yeah, just like. Never know. You never know. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> really opened my mind. All right. So, yeah, he decides to finally d- to help. Uh, they the find a fresh body. He holds the body's New hand body. and witnesses the moita. The moita. Including the face of the killer and everything. It's amazing how quick he's like, uh, yeah, it's Dodd. Dodd killed her. <laughs> I saw him. And Dodd Done is deal. the... Um, Dodd is he's a, a police deputy. officer in the town. Yeah, he's yeah. a deputy. He's like literally there. So Dodd like hightails it out of the gazebo that they're all at and is like, uh, okay. Uh, Repeat, suspect is fleeing the gazebo. And uh, he's like, yeah, I love the response of, uh, he's like, where's Dodd? And he's like, he stole your car. Like no one stopped this guy. <laughs> Even though I guess they didn't know at that time, it's just hilarious yeah. to me that if a guy, if a police officer is like, what are they doing over there? Well, he's the psychic guy is going to try to figure out who's the killer. Anyway, I got to go for unrelated reasons. <laughs> yeah. So Dodd uh, puts on a rubber suit and jams his head into a pair of scissors. Yeah, that's a weird way to die. Well, he is. Obviously, his killings are all with that pair of scissors. So he has a bizarre fascination with the scissors. Right. Um, I'm guessing the I don't know why the rubber suit just to make it Cronenbergian and sexual, I think. I guess. And uh, so the sheriff and Walken burst in. They shoot the mom in the fracas. He touches her hand and he's like, you knew you covered it up. Um, so it's interestingly episodic. He just kind of has the well, the short psychic adventures because now that's resolved and other stuff happens. Right, the book, yeah. the book itself is kind of episodic, uh, and mm-hmm. they tried to do that justice. I give a lot of credit to the filmmakers. I think yeah. if that's the story, that should be the story. So. so, some pipe they've been quietly laying in the background is that Martin Sheen is running for Senate. And Martin Sheen is this guy, Greg Stilson, and you just see like campaign shit for him in the background throughout. Yeah. And at this point, that takes the focus, right? Is this where the switchover happens? Uh, yeah, it is kind of. There's a there's Am a sequence. There's a sequence where he lives in a more isolated, like he's tutoring kids. Uh, there's a remember it's remember it's the hockey. Sequence. Oh yeah, there's like a happy time where things but it's, are fine. I mean, kind of. Uh, he just chooses not to use his power. He's also you can tell his health is really starting to wane. 
Um, yes, which lead, gives rise to, I think, the funniest scene where Dr. Sam Wyzak comes and says, now, listen, I've researched things like this. <laughs> right. And it turns out that psychic powers drain your life force. How the fuck did he find that out? Yeah. And he comes in, he's like, that's how it works. I'm sure of it. It just is such a weirdly unearned confidence. But he's like, so here's how the magic works. And and it's true. I mean, we believe it by movie rules. I just think it's nuts. But anyway, right. it's yeah. uh, and at the same time, so he's not using his power, which allows him to be a little more virile. And uh, he's tutoring uh, Chris, a perfectly normal kid, even though his rich dad thinks something's wrong with him. He seems perfectly fine. His, uh, his dad is so weird, man. Yeah, and his dad is just like a rich muckety-muck, which is how he runs into Greg Stilson, because he's such a rich guy that Greg Stilson is haranguing him to be a donor. Yeah, and he's he's just really fascinated with like uh, his him his son playing hockey. Like it's just like this is what you do, and you listen to me, and I'm gonna be a dick about it. Which Trying is, to make him a man. Which is a very typical Stephen King dad archetype, to be honest. Hmm. Yeah. Oh, yeah. So he ends up he's crying. Why is he crying? I just wrote down the line. Chris says, why are you crying, Johnny? <laughs> oh, he's but crying uh, at the oh. door because like uh, so Sarah is brought up again because Sarah and her new husband are mm. like essentially canvassing the town for it's, trying to get people to vote for wait Stilton. for it. It's Sarah and Dipitus. Mm-hmm. <laughs> yeah, that's right. Yeah. I, I went there. Yeah, all right. It's yeah. my podcast. I hell do what yeah, I want. Yeah. They, they a- drop by because they're canvassing for Stilson. He sees yeah. him and then he says to Chris, read the part of the Raven about Lenore never coming back. And he reads it and he cries. It's like making yourself cry intentionally. And the kids, why are you crying, Johnny? And um, he says, come over here. And he touches <laughs> the kid. hugs the boy. And he foresees, which, by the way, he does not grab his hand, I don't think. I think he No, he grabs his, the top of his head, so it's just contact. He just chooses to, like, grab onto people's okay. hands weirdly all the time. Well, he foresees he's going to die by drowning in a hockey uniform, so he makes him not do hockey, which pisses his or dad off. Or tells him, yeah. Yeah. And uh, then he ends up... Uh, when does he touch? Because this is the first time roundabout here. Oh, he sees an election event for Stilson out the window, mm-hmm. which again is pretty serendipitous. I feel like this bit relies a lot on serendipity, but I guess if you have psychic powers, you could also argue that you subconsciously end up in the right place at the right time. See, I'm doing the work for them. Mm-hmm. Um, right. He shakes Stilson's hand at a campaign event. At the rally, yeah. And sees Stilson in the future deciding to push the button and launch the nukes that will wipe out life on earth yeah, and that he becomes president three or far something. in the future. Yeah. yeah. And he then after a Which in 83 is like a, that's like, mm-hmm. that was like a fear. We just got off of that. You know, like it, that was, I think everyone assumed cold war shit, you know? Well, during the cold war period, which this came out during the tail end of, uh, there, yeah, was an incredibly heightened. I don't know if our younger listeners are aware, but, you know, things like duck and cover and klaxons in your town ringing when they're, whenever we thought there might be a nuclear bomb incoming and going to fallout shelters. Nuclear devastation was the ho- was like the Holocaust and the atrocity that they were all waiting nervously to happen. Abe and I grew up after that, but not too long after. Yeah. And so now, but now the new one's climate change, which is... 
I am very, very healthily afraid of, but um, <laughs> nuclear war could still happen, but I feel like it's less top of mind. But man, there's a period where all sci-fi stories are about whether the bombs are going to drop or not. Right. And I mean, in, in book form and film form. Right. Uh, Vonnegut is a big, big nuclear Holocaust guy as well. Mm -hmm. So uh, the stand, which we'll get to. So anyway, where are we at? Uh, so he resolves after a heart to heart with his doctor to assassinate her. and then what Abe? uh well yeah he he decides to get a bolt action rifle and to show up to the next rally essentially um and he takes aim sarah's there uh with her child on like the um on the stage and so when he gets an option he fires at uh stilson uh, and Stilson immediately grabs like the nearest baby, which, which is happens Danny. to be Sarah's dad. Yeah. Sarah's baby and holds him as a human shield. Uh, you know, kind of like, and I think you kind of hear in the audio, he's like egging him on like, now nah, you can't fire at me. Ah, he's like a real piece of shit. I got a Martin baby. Sheenies. See, yeah, exactly. <laughs> and so obviously Johnny is not going to fire at the child, but then a photographer, uh, who by the way is played by, uh, Martin Sheen's son. Yeah. Saw that. The third Estevez. Yeah. Uh, he snapped, he takes a photo of, uh, Stilson holding the baby. Um, and then, uh, basically this, not the secret service because he's not elected yet. He's just trying to get it in the but Senate, his thugs, Sonny. but his thugs, yeah, his thugs, uh, fire and, uh, mortally wound, uh, Johnny who, as he falls down from like the rat, the top level of like, I guess it's a church, right? Um, mm. when he lands, he touches, uh, he touches Stilson's hand again, and now there's a new, uh, you know, premonition. And it's that, uh, you know, Martin Sheen looks at the cover of a Newsweek and it has the photo that we just saw the photographer taking of him, like dangling a baby in front of him as a human shield. And it basically says, like, why Stilson is done. No future for Stilson. No future yeah. for Stilson. And then he grabs a pistol and blows his brains out. Cuts back to Christopher Walken, smiling on the ground, saying, you're finished. He feels satisfied that, you know, like uh, that we're not going to have a nuclear war. Uh, Sarah kind of runs over uh, as the as Stilson and his thugs like try to find the guy, uh, the photographer. They kind of like run out still uh sarah r runs to the uh runs to johnny who's uh, basically about to die and says she loves him and then that's the end the, of the end movie. and it is it feels like that the end <laughs> like it really is quick it's yeah it's like yeah. and fire and dead and then realization you're like oh okay all these beats are happening there's no denouement the denouement is just the realization that it's over there's not uh, even crossfade to Dr. Sam Wyzak yeah. at the grave Saying and then really crossfade the credits. There's nothing, nothing. <laughs> it's a dead zone. All well, right. The dead zone, I think, if that, if I recall well, well, from save the it. book. Save right. it for the. That's unpack. That's unpacking. I think. That's a, sure. That's unpacking, but that's not next. No. What's next is. Skeleton Crew. Skeleton Crew. Something in the mist! 
Shut the doors! Shut the doors! It's the Spooky Bone Parade, where we talk about anything related to... I think it's real brief this time. Well, yeah, there's, no, there's uh, just one thing to talk about, which is that yeah. it's directed by David Cronenberg, right? That's the main thing? Uh, you got so we it. talk about the cast and crew, people. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I mean, there's... It's got... The the cast, there hasn't been a lot of... It's got Walken, it's got Sheen. Um, there's a few other people of note, but there, I wouldn't say that there's a lot of... Uh, like this is 80s, early 80s cinema. So it's not really that it's not trying to do like, oh, wow, they like developed a new like technology for this movie or anything like that. So there's nothing of note to take to think of. I will mention that um, this is the film. This is the film that sandwiches two huge Cronenbergs, which is this is the came out the same year as Videodrome. It's a flesh uh, sandwich. Right. And then this is his film before The Fly. So he in this 1983 to 1985-ish time, this is when he's really becoming, oh, it's Cronenberg is like legit and he's getting money to do these kinds of things. That's very Um, interesting because my major takeaway that applies to it's -hmm. very transparent. Uh, Misery was very transparent, but Mm -hmm. Misery felt in the acting choices and the way it was handled in certain respects. You can listen to our Misery episode. Mm -hmm. uh, Super ambitious still or competent to a level of polish that was like, "Mm, yeah, this I think feels transparent like a like any decent TV production from this era. It just like. It didn't cause problems or make waves. It looked fine and it felt fine. Um, I did find the editing interesting. That's more for a later segment. But just as go as like as to Cronenberg's direction, I just wanted to say I do think it's a very interesting beat because Videodrome is very fleshy and body yeah. horror weird. Mm-hmm. And so is The Fly. Mm-hmm. I think this is Cronenberg's flirtation with Videodrome was enough of a hit that I have mainstream interest. Let me make a mainstream film. And I think you feel that lack of fit mm. and that lack of passion a little bit. It's the beat between him becoming so powerful in Hollywood, powerful enough that he could do what he does, which is the fly. Like the fly is a return right. to form. I feel like this is in between returns in between Cronenberg movies. He tried his hand at a more standard movie. <clears throat> mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Uh, this uh, speaking of Cronenberg. Uh, there's a method that he used that was actually not his idea, but Christopher Walken's idea, which is that, remember the sequence I was talking about earlier where I was like, it's very off-putting because like um, the sound effect is very grating. It's when Christopher Walken, when Johnny goes into like, uh, when he has know, visions. the psychic visions and uh, the way in which they accomplish that is to shoot it without sound. David Cronenberg off screen fired a magnum, pistol with blanks to make uh christopher walken flinch and that's something that uh christopher walken wanted so that's another just you know collaboration that's the way they chose to do that of note i thought yeah still better than herzog and what's his name (laughs) pulling guns on each other in the jungle uh Klaus. (laughs) Klaus. <laughs> yeah. Uh, Kinski, that's right. But I, I yeah. do think it's more than is necessary, which is funny. Like, it's not it's, that hard to flinch I mean, disconcertingly. I think Walken yeah. just thought it would be fun. 
all I'll say is that uh, for me, it was very effective. Those sections there. This is not this is not like you said, a body horror. There's not a lot of gore or anything like that. And it's still a very off putting movie at times. It's more like a Twilight Zone where you're waiting for the twist and the twist happens and you're like, that was a pretty good ride. Right. Exactly. Um, This is Stephen King's first book to reach number one on the bestseller list. That's so interesting, too, because the other thing I wanted to talk about in the Skeleton Crew segment, because it's where we talk about King himself, um, we've recently covered a few movies that I think uncover. uh, And I really like because this podcast, if in case you're unaware, grew out of the Coen Brothers brothers. And something we noticed about the Coen Brothers is there are themes, for example, crimes that involve guns. They do not shy away from. Hey, that'll ratchet up the tension. Someone's going to shoot someone. You know what I mean? Someone Mm -hmm. stole money. Um, But other than those simple things like transferals of wealth to represent the stakes or, you know, to set up the drama, uh, man, they're various. Like, man, their films seem to be about many different aspects of being alive. And Mm -hmm. it it still blows my mind. Whereas this series covers adaptations by all different directors and creators. And yet at their core, they all do homage to the mind of Stephen King. And I do think we're seeing him cleave closer to themes and motifs. Like there are Stephen King ingredients that I didn't realize were so omnipresent. Um, And this one notably avoids a lot of them. But it does still have the English teacher character. And Stephen King, of course, was an English teacher before he became so wealthy that he is just Stephen King now. But um, before that, his one job was he was an English teacher. And uh, so I think there's a little of himself in this. That's something we've tracked is there is a lot of autobiography. Um, Of course, the location. He likes to write about areas he knows. But by and large, I thought it was notable how this also feels like Stephen King trying something new and different. And it's interesting that you note that for him, it was a smashing success. Like his attempt to do a more mainstream, what about just like a ripping yarn that would be a black mirror, a twilight zone. And uh, it sounds like the, in the book form, at least it killed. Right. So there you go. Yeah. It's almost interesting that he chose the title, the dead zone. I mean, I feel like this is a it good segue. It makes it sound scarier than it is. Yeah. Is this a good segue into our next uh, section? That's true. Good call. Well, let's enter it. Well, if you'll come with me, you'll float too. You'll float too. You'll float the living too. zone. No. The living zone. This is where we talk about scene work themes, uh, symbolism. Mm-hmm. Uh, the re- What you just said reminds me because is this a horror movie? I would call it a supernatural thriller. Yeah. And I think that that's probably one of the reasons that it did well on uh, for him uh, mm-hmm. as a book. Because King, who had, you know, Cujo and, you know, he's penning a lot Ooh, of... Ooh, I could read the shit out of this on a plane. Yeah. On a long this plane is, ride. Uh, yeah. <laughs> this is not... Even though it's called The Dead Zone, which to me smacks of a, like a horror kind of thing like am i gonna be reading about people who are dead is that what is a dead zone you know Mm -hmm. like so it's still it seemed like he was still trying to say like yeah it's like 
Stephen King, he's still kind of the master of horror, but also this is not really a horror. So anyone can kind of read it and still be fine with it. And I think that was a very smart choice because it still feels like King, but I think it probably opened up a whole market for him uh, when it was, you know, clearly not, yeah. uh, you know, marketed as like a like square horror. And I think even the film has had a lasting impact. Like I didn't realize, I mean, when you consider the score and the look of the font and everything, like Stranger Things credit sequence owes this title sequence. Like there are. Oh, yeah. Dead Zone did the the movie itself did join the dialectic and I think have an impact on yeah. the film space. I just still think and this is my major, major takeaway from the film this time. Uh, I'd seen it once before, but now with like more of an appreciation of Cronenberg's voice and just more uh, of a focused eye on what what we're doing here with this whole Kings of King thing. If I feel like you feel the lack of confidence or lack of maybe passion, lack of overwhelming passion. I don't know it. The movie feels like uh, an exercise in competency. Does that make sense? Yeah. I, I might put it a little different. I think it comes from the source material. Uh, it's clearly more fascinating. Like, let's look at it and look about like, remember when we were talking about the symbolism of it? Because you get to see like, oh, this is how the sewer, this is how water is, keeps coming up. This is how Pennywise like kind yeah. of attacks the the through line in this movie and in this story is just the idea, the high concept that he's psychic. So there's not, he, Stephen King didn't really try to hit it from the angle of like, I'm going to have some symbolic through lines. In fact, he just kind of had it episodic where he's like, this happens, this happens, this has some happens. We don't really get a strong antagonist even though he takes down a serial killer, it all happens very quickly. Like we the don't serial killer is not an overarching antagonist. Very no. quickly. Yeah. It's like, Oh shit, there's some shit. All right. I'll, I'll like arrive and help you out. Just and you know what it ends shit. up? Oh, it's that guy. Oh, it's over. Jesus, you know what it ends crazy. up really feeling like, especially the middle part where he's a bitter, sad sack walking on a cane right. who magically looks into the middle distance and then solves your problem. House. He's house. It's yeah. like if someone got the superpower of being Dr. House. <laughs> right. Yeah, it feels that way. And so there's not a lot of like, I think I thought it was interesting that he chose not to have like symbolic through lines, because something that I've noticed is that ep in episodic kind of literature or movies, uh, you can easily do that thematic resonance like, like you mentioned Black Mirror. It's very easy for, you know, a Twilight Zone or a Black Mirror to have a very specific like this is what I'm saying about, you know, like this is how technology, for example, often Whatever harms statement. us more than helps. Have a statement. Or, yeah. Yeah. And so because of that, I thought that this would have more of a statement uh, after rewatching it because like you, I had seen it when I was a lot younger. We had it on VHS. Uh, but because of it's like, it's not like a movie that like kid would watch, you know, cause it's kind of boring, a lot mm -hmm. of conversations, uh, and it's kind of horrifying in, in a weird way. It's like somehow misses the mark on a lot of like things that young Abe would not be interested in. Sure. Um, but yeah, when you actually sit down and watch it, I, I was anticipating seeing a lot of uh, symbolism that I would not have 
I was like, oh, I was just a kid and I missed that. Um, I still could be missing it. And I encourage people yeah, who no, have read the book and say like, oh, the, the book has this very clearly. The movie didn't do a great job of it, but it's a little bit in there. Point that out because he can do know. that. Right. Like King, you know what I mean? The Shining is likewise fraught with subtext. This That's right. why I describe it as an airport book. What I think of as an airport right. book are ripping yarns that don't have subtext because it's, then yes. you can just enjoy it and it's like popcorn. Enjoy you know? the high concepts. Yeah. You know, and take a ride on the idea about someone being psychic. And Let's I not, also like, found myself deeper. groping for some kind of message. I The one instance I highlighted was the moment when he says, uh, when on TV they reveal... The Castle Rock killer, uh, she was 15 years old and the body was raped as they all have been. That's when we, the audience, learned that the Castle Rock killer doesn't just kill you. He rapes you and stabs you to death and his targets right. are underage women. Kind of buried the lead on that one. Yeah, you they bury the lead and then you, but I think it's for shock value. You go, holy shit. Right. But then it's interesting to me that this is arguably the only satirical move the movie makes because it is not a satire but it's almost that, like it's yeah. such low-hanging satirical fruit that they just took it um the guy goes and now to ron with sports and weather and the shift is so in mood is so intentional that it's like look how society is alienated yeah, right and i get that Verhoeven move but it's such a that that literally that beat of a news anchor saying something horrible and then saying, and now sports and weather really cheerfully right. has been done so much that I feel like they almost stumbled into it. And I found myself wondering, Oh, is that it? Is that the satirical thread? And then trying to map that to the rest of the movie and being like, I think they just took a no, low hanging fruit no. thing there. I don't think there's meaning <clears throat> in the film. Which is surprising to me because Cronenberg almost 100% of the time has that. That's why I'm like eager to see if someone found something that I just didn't. Uh, because I don't know if there's like a nature, like is the, the psychic nature symbolic of something? Right. You know, although is, there were, it did raise two like, questions of yeah. human quintessential to human life that I thought were fascinating. Like the concept, but they both spin off of the premise, like you said. The concept at the end that no one will ever know that he was right. He will go down in history as a guy who thought yeah. he was psychic, so he assassinated a senator. That's cool to me. The conundrum of would you kill Hitler? By the way, though, That's I got to observe. Huge. How right. the fuck does Dr. Sam Wyzak not know what's going to happen? He's seen that he's psychic over and over. And then they meet and he goes, if you could kill Hitler before he rose to power, would you do it? And he yeah. goes like, I don't know, man. I just want, I care about you and blah, blah, blah. And some other news about my family. How he is goes, his next question? Not who's Hitler. And he goes, like, but you didn't answer my question. Me, would you kill Hitler? Hitler? And he goes, yes, I would have to kill Hitler. And he doesn't say, why do you ask? Yeah. Is it because you know a Hitler? Yeah. Is it maybe because you touch someone and who'd found you touch? Out there's a Hitler. Who'd you touch? Who's Hitler, man? I'm pretty it. sure I need you to tell me who that guy is. <laughs> but in the classic way, the reason I compare it to sci-fi short stories is like a good sci-fi short story will often leave you with, ooh, that is a heck of a conundrum. Would you do it? Could, you know, knowing that legacy, that we're all going to die and part of the part of what comforts right. us while we're alive is legacy or like hopefully my aggregate impact on other humans who live on after me is positive and that's good what if everyone will think you're an asshole crazy person and 
all you did was prevent something bad, but but no one will ever know for sure if that would right. have happened. That needs to be <laughs> that needs to be the heart. Like what you're saying, it needs to be the heart of the question, the conundrum. It's funny to me that he the, doesn't really uh, have, struggle with it. He just goes right, for it because it's not a question that needs much struggling. That's the thing is like, I don't know when I think about something like we talked about, what was it? Um, damn. What was the name? What was the name of the Ethan Hawke time travel movie that we covered? Predestination. Predestination. Um, with Vanessa. Like, there, there's a, like when you have a high concept like that and you have like literally, I'm glad you mentioned the Hitler conversation because the Hitler conversation is kind of the psychological question at the heart of dead zone, which is, you know, would you, what, what would you go, what would you do in order to prevent? Like, would you take your own life in order to prevent? Would like, you take like your own name and reputation and, and life? Yeah. And that to me is like, when we talk about sci-fi and we talk about like high concept literature, that isn't a great question only because like from a story perspective, only because it doesn't inherently have conflict. It's very easy for someone to say, no, I'd never take my life for anything. It's very easy for someone to say, of course, he's fucking Hitler. I'm going to kill that guy. You know? Yeah. Are you going to, and you would die? Uh, yeah, yeah, I would die. You know, it's like, like it's pretty cut and dry to me. Uh, there's not a lot of conflict in the question because there's not a lot of cases where it's like on one side you have Hitler, which we think of, ah. and then on and the that's other side an you interesting have you. That's an interesting secret key to storytelling that I think you're sort of uh, dancing around is like to a film that asks or raises a question that is very binary, that is sort of a yes or no question with very little gray area. Is mm -hmm. inherently the mo the best you're gonna get is a ripping yarn that's that's disposable and you forget it eventually, but it's fun while it lasted. Yeah, uh, movies nice that we take out. as thinkers or dense or haunting almost always are raising a question where if you asked the question in conversation, it could have a thousand different answers because it's fraught with gray area. And it's also a question that the more your protagonists goes through the process of answering that question from different vantages muddled, and taking different positions. Yeah. The more muddled and complex and kind of not easy to resolve occurs. And you then know, you get you, one of those movies that's hailed as like, it asks all the right questions, but it doesn't provide any easy answers. Right. Yeah. There's it's all a spectrum, but I guess all I'm saying is, and I'm, I'm not here to say that like we shouldn't have these binary questions and that means it's a bad story. It's just one, a Typical for King in a, in a certain way. Um, but I do also understand that King would do it because he's more about, he's more about finding a concept that is just like knocks it, you know, knocks it out of the park just because it's like a high concept. That's cool to think about. Um, no, some of them are not very condensable into elevator, mm -hmm. elevator pitch format. And even yeah. more so as he becomes, 
as you see him become the most powerful novelist mm-hmm. on earth and he doesn't have to pitch to anyone then yeah. you get really indulgent stuff like desperation and the regulators right. you know <laughs> yeah and the binary question has been around forever too it's not like Stephen. this falls on Stephen king's footsteps think of something like a tale that we tell all the time like um robin hood robin hood is a great example because it's like a very cut and dry uh cut and dry binary system right mm-hmm. it's like no of course you side on robin hood's side uh and Robin Hood is rarely tested in those tales. Like if anything, maybe he's shown more like pushback from the sheriff of Nottingham or whatnot, but ultimately he's on the side of, you know, righteousness. But um, one more step grounded movie or telling of Robin Hood would have a scene in there where you cut to the sheriff of Nottingham and you see that the sheriff really is trying his best on a limited budget to serve the people and Robin mm-hmm. Hood constantly stealing is making it impossible to feed people or something. <clears throat> and you'd be like, ah, it's not so simple, right? That's, I love that yeah. you could tell the same story at any gradation of the spectrum if you want. I mean, that's uh, what you just, that's uh, season, what is it, four of The Wire? <laughs> like that is just... Mm-hmm. That's Karketty, you know, like that's yeah. Karketty. Where we're like, do the here's best why someone becomes completely morally corrupt. Yeah, yeah, <laughs> yeah there's exactly. reason. And he's just like, oh, it's because politics as a system is flawed. Mm, power is very bad. <laughs> and at the, the end, what is power? But just the manifestation of the fact that as animals, you can't you have to be self-interested. Oh, the mm-hmm. wire. Oh, oh the, wire. the wire. Oh, the <laughs> anyway. wire. But, you know, but yeah, so I, I think that that's not going to, I don't think this, bi- I think it's, I think we're right. I think that it is a binary question and a binary conflict when it boils down, at least the main thrust of the story, because like we said, it's episodic. And the main thrust of the story, really, I would give to the Stilson arc because it's like our act three, it's our biggest, it's our climax. He dies and cool because of echoes it. of... I think what we're living through, right? I think Trump has right. an impact that is not dissimilar to launching the nukes in the aggregate. At least the fear is very real the and very fear there. is real that he'll you know, fucking the guy's got run it. this yeah. shit into the ground like he has any, everything he's ever led. Any president has the nuclear football codes, you know? It's like sure. at any time, shit could go crazy. Uh, so because of that, that, and that is very much the fear of the Cold War. That's why like a movie about the Cold War like Failsafe or something like that, which is Sidney Lumet, uh, that has a very... At the center of that is a very non-binary question about the nature of what it means to be able to choose to take someone's life and the consequences that go along with that. Um, this is a movie that just wants us to understand that if you were to have this power, this this could be a possible uh, way in which this like turns out. And uh, for superpower, it's a pretty shitty one. I'm pretty, I'm pretty like, I think that Christopher Walken and it, when Johnny says like, this is not a gift. Like I know that when it's, he says it, it's because he's kind of pouting over the fact that he's been given a real shitty, like lot in life. You know, his legs barely work. He lost out on the five interesting parallels to Dr. Strange too, because he has the same ending, except unlike Dr. Strange, he does die and his reputation is ruined. Yeah. He does the thing that Doctor Strange pretends to do. And so that's what does make that binary. Like it is a slight. It's a binary question, but it still is slightly more interesting than most things that have binary questions, if that makes sense. Just because it resolves in a way that is at the end, we pity. We pity him for his superpower. Like we 
anytime we go like, would you want to fly? Were you psychic? If you could change things, these superpowers, that would be awesome. Right. Mm -hmm. And there's a little bit, there's like not really a montage, but there's a bit of like, damn, he just saved that kid. Even from his dad, who was like set out on making his kid die by making, forcing him to go to hockey practice. He, he got, he convinced the kid and he got the dad to not do it. Right. Uh, and the, even that symbolic victory is when he stopped a serial killer. Yeah. Yeah. The, that symbolic victory is still tempered by, he opens up a newspaper and it says two kids died and then Just he looks not at that it kid. and he yeah. realized, Oh, I didn't stop it. I just saved a kid. And so that there is a little bit of complexity and gray area there. Uh, but well, yeah, and that, would, that is bolstered by he gets all the fan letters from people who want his help. Uh, so it's like the Superman conundrum. If you can help, how much do you give of yourself to everyone who needs help in the world? Right. And so much like Robin Hood, I think the audience is always going to be on Johnny's side in all these decisions. Like he almost perfectly makes every decision correctly. He always appeals to what's the most moral thing to do. He thinks of ways and invents ways in order to stop people who are bad uh, based off the information we know that he's getting is true. And it is. Uh, but, you know, he's never really questioned. He's never really pushed uh, into a corner and said like, yeah, but you have to choose between these two things and guess what? It's not morally, you know, very, there's never a dilemma. Dry. Yeah. Fun fact. Well, maybe everyone knows this, but I just feel like more people should know dilemma. Die means two. a dilemma is not just a problem. Dilemma specifically refers to a problem where there are only two options and they're both bad. That's a dilemma. Yeah. More, you know, that's a real, it's a, yeah. Star like with a that. rainbow goes by. Mm, mm. I love words that mean very specific things like penultimate, like second to that last. Why is there a word for it? It I doesn't remember need to exist. In film school, I didn't even know that because I'm mm. not great with words. Um, and I said penultimate meaning the ultimate. And they were like, you know, it means the second to last. And um, my immediate reaction wasn't to be mad that like at myself for using that word incorrectly. Like, why is like, that why word? the fuck does that word exist? Why do we need that word? Yeah, yeah it's obviously an Abby word. singer. Yeah. <laughs> but, uh, you know, insular film talk. Yeah. Um, that is it. Yeah. Happy singer is the penultimate shot of the day. Yep. More What's the know. ultimate? I forget. A Lauren Walker martini martini. That's right. <laughs> Lauren Walker is a friend of ours. <laughs> that's true. That's right. Um, Abby, Abe, yeah. I also want to send you a screenshot. I took is one of the few times I wish this was a visual medium. Uh, I'll send it over discord of Tom Skerritt. Tom mm -hmm. Skerritt. Maybe we can make this the thumbnail for the episode. Tom Skerritt has a fucking hell of a of a scared face in this movie that i just really can't get over oh, oh yeah, yeah i'm seeing it that's got good... his wrinkly little chin <laughs> he's like looking off to the left terrified what yeah. the fuck is this shit yeah he's a, he's a he's been a, he's just so much he's just that guy he's one of those yep. guys in acting a lot of people probably know him if you're you know you know of him you know of him, but you've definitely seen him. This stuff. If you watch movies in the nineties, yeah, he's, and uh, he's the sheriff in this movie. So yeah, another, a couple more things. I feel like what we're talking about. This is more supporting evidence, I guess, for what we've already established. But I do feel like the lack of subtext or the idea that it has no message is strengthened by the fact that at the last minute they ADR'd the line "I love you." 
the final line of yeah, the movie, which if I you're familiar that. with screenwriting, that's a key line. You are, you think about that line a lot. The final line it changes of the movie. The ending entirely. Yeah. And uh, the fact that Sarah says, I love you wasn't even decided until in the edit, they're like, just get her in the booth and have her say, I love you. That to me implies heavily that they knew they had no underlying message. Uh, because that yeah, is not a, a thing to take flippantly. Yeah. The married woman with children says to the dying man, I love you. And they flipped it at the last second. That's just very interesting to me. I think that that's Cronenberg going like, this is a bummer, man. This is a real bummer. I mean, he stops Do, nuclear holocaust, but you don't get need, to feel it. Yeah. You don't feel it. And yeah. So I think that that's him just going, uh, people are going to walk away with like, fuck that movie. If I don't do this because he understood what audiences respond to. Yeah. And I think especially at that time, we're all created for our we're created by and for the times that we are making things in. I think he was right about that. I think it would have been more of a bummer if we didn't get that line. I don't think it's an important line because as a filmmaker, I kind of see what he's doing and what he's not doing. And it makes me go, well, it's kind of ex uh, extraneous to the whole doesn't really matter um but yeah it's a big offer that's for sure it makes you feel like oh well he can die happy at least for whatever that's yeah. worth and i think they like you said it's the way that you know that it's just a story so to speak is that they make the dilemma an easy one. They make the choice very simple. And that's even strengthened by the fact that they set up, well, he's already dying. The more he uses his psychic powers, the weaker he gets. Mm -hmm. He's going to die soon anyway. So it's like, if you ask someone that question, would you kill Hitler if you're going to die soon anyway? Well, that then, yeah, definitely. I think that would shift the poll very strongly towards why the hell not. Right, right. Yeah, I think the doctor tries to appeal to him that we can treat this. Yeah, the doctor's nuts, though, dude. The doctor makes but, no sense from his own perspective. Because, like, for example, the dead zone is in reference to the fact that when he says, when I have psychic visions, now this is years into their acquaintanceship after the psych right. point of psychicness being confirmed. The doctor takes it for granted that he's psychic. And he says, in these psychic visions, there's areas I can't see. I call it the dead zone. And he goes... That must represent uh, the future being unestablished. The fact that means why you can't just see the future. You can change it. And it's like, why are you surprised? The first time he ever exhibited psychicness, he saved the child from the burning building. He changed the future. What yeah, are you talking you about? People aware of it. Yeah. yeah. Um, I, so I just didn't. The doctor's dialogue from his own perspective always threw me for a loop. Yeah. Yeah, it's tough. Uh, he was also kind of an exposition dump for a lot of things. Well, and then he gave another red herring. It's not a strictly a red herring because it doesn't need to be paid off, but I thought it would, which is he he's the only one who doesn't take the psychic advice because he says, your mom's actually alive. You thought she was dead. Here's her phone number. And he calls her and he hangs up and he goes, why didn't you talk to her? And he says, because it wasn't meant to be, which made me think. They were going to do like a Final Destination thing where the kid who right. survived does die in a fire later in a different way. Or the boy drowns not in hockey, but in something else. And it's like, no, 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 no. There's no fate and it's component. Just, he can change it's the future. It's just a torture device for Christopher Walken. <laughs> right. He just can 
change a tiny bit of the future, but knows. it self-corrects. But no, it turns out that the doctor just made she a personal choice stuff, and it didn't yeah. really affect anything. It's just character development from the doctor. And that's just the rules of the world that Stephen King built. So he built a, a world with very hard and fast rules. But I would say uh, the fact that a lot of your moments are used for character development rather than strictly to advance the plot or premise or impart a message, that's what makes it feel like a TV show because that's what TV does. It's all character yeah. development moments. I mean, it doesn't help that it's episodic and it's like, all right, bring the next case in, mm -hmm. bring the next case in. Um, that doesn't help. We don't get to understand. We don't get to understand uh, like a one dilemma deeply we understand many dilemmas loosely that's right i guess that would be i think if you could sum up our review it would be dead zone you understand many dilemmas loosely mm -hmm. that characterizes the film so i think we're ready for a final yeah. segment unless you got more uh i don't know i think that was a good conversation okay. i enjoyed that that leads us to the stand. Okay, you ready? I'm ready if you is. All right. Uh, so yeah, should we go one to seven, seven to one? We want to go. We're gonna go with shining. We're gonna guess. I just revealed it. We're gonna go with top to bottom, right? Yeah, that's one, right. Down to seven. And okay. this this includes everything we've covered thus far in its entirety. So by the end of this podcast, we will have like a hundred unit long list of every Stephen King That's thing insane. in quality order, definitively. We'll see. We'll see. All right. So hopefully we'll be faster about that when we get to our hundredth episode. But one. The Shining. Shining. Number yeah. two. Stand By Me. Stand By Me. Number three. Three. Misery. Four. Number four. The Mist. Number five, five. Dead Zone. It. Oh! <laughs> the first one. God you put damn it. Over it. it. Well, I and can't so take it back. Makes... I said it. I wanted to fudge it and make it work, but no, it's done. Yeah, it's fine. Uh, the, the Here we are. Number and six. And so obviously for six, you would be it, it and I'd be Dead Zone. Unless you seven. thought Dreamcatcher was better than Dead no, Zone. I did. No, I, <laughs> I did not. Uh, so Dreamcatcher, as always. I think it <laughs> is more interesting as an intellectual exercise, but I would rather mm -hmm. watch Dead Zone again than watch it See, again. I know, I know that it... Uh, some of the reason I put it above is that I know that it, the, like the, the miniseries is a less good version. We haven't covered the other it's, mm -hmm. but like for a visual medium, Pennywise, the clown and the stuff that they do in that movie are still more, still beg me to look at it longer <laughs> than the dead zone, which is kind of seems like a philosophical movie that I never really got interested in the philosophy of it. So it's just like a kind of a lame duck the whole time. And I just am appealing to, I think you're forgetting texturally how boring it was from moment to moment when Pennywise yeah, wasn't there. Yeah, I know, but it's also longer. So I'm trying yeah. to give the benefit of the doubt. And it's tough because Cronenberg is like one of my favorites. Uh, I think Cronenberg did a great job. I just, I think that there is more uh, symbolism and interesting stuff going on in the story of it. And I just, I still give it to it. I'm glad Darabont's rising up because the mist started low, but that's sort of underrepresentative. That's now, yeah, now I we're filling out the bottom ranks and it's floating up. Oh man. Like yeah. Mist will do. 
Well, tell us what you think your list is and who's right and who's if we're maybe we're both wrong. Maybe we're both maybe Dreamcatcher is actually the, still secretly the hidden it, best film. It. It's it's better than The Shining. I'd love to hear that argument from literally anybody. <laughs> Maximum overdrive. Uh, Oh hell yeah! Yeah, we got. I don't know what we'll do next time. Oh, yeah. but, uh, what should we do next time? Let's. I don't know. I feel like we got to. Do we want to call it? Because last time we called it, we got in this hole. Well, I think debacle. we'll just check and see if the film is, you know, gettable. Yeah, that's fair. I have the list. That's fair. Um, well, let's see. This was from. I think we could also start because I like jumping around far in time. You know what I mean? Time, yeah. Because I was gonna say I kind of want to do like Cujo after I was like right. looking. Nineteen eighty three is really early in his adaptation career. So let's pick something yeah. fairly recent. Let's do something later. Let's maybe let's not do any it because we just done it. Mm -hmm. so, like let's give some time before we. I think we should do it and it one or it one and two pretty close to time together in time. But I still don't think we're there yet. Dark Tower, um, Gerald's Game, Doctor Sleep. Um, I kind of want to do Doctor. Well, I could do Doctor Sleep, man. Julie Ganapathy. Oh, it's another adaptation of Misery. That's cool. I apologize. You can hear construction happening outside of my... That's all right. It just started. So. I have an uh, apt pupil. Thinner. You want to do Dr. Sleep? I haven't seen I it. I kind of want to do Dr. Sleep. All right, then. Next we'll, episode. We'll sleep it up. We'll sleep it up. Hell yeah. So it's Shining related, right? Yes. Okay. It's like a kind of a sequel. It's as good as The Shining, is, is what you're saying. Oh. Great. <laughs> Critical response. The dead Zone. 77% <laughs> on Rotten Tomatoes. Sounds good. All right. I can't it. wait. Till next time, my friend. King. Ugh. See? That's the right note. This has been a Small Beans Endeavor. We're a bunch of pals who make podcasts, sketches, music, web series, and movies. The Beans always have new ideas percolating, so make sure to check us out at patreon.com slash smallbeans. That's p-a-t-r-e-o-n dot com forward slash smallbeans, where you can browse all of our current and past content, see what we've got planned in the future, and learn how your support can help the Small Beans grow into huge, giant monster beans. If you enjoyed this content module, please like, rate, subscribe, or tell a friend about us. We love you.